the future. The polar ice caps have melted, covering the Earth with water. Those who survived have adapted to a new world. Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. Marcus! Who come for me, he will. Well then you better tell me what I want to know. Or he can save what's left of you in a goddamn jar. Today, as part of our throwback series, we'll be discussing Waterworld, starring Kevin Costner, Dennis Hopper, Gene Triplehorn, and Tina Margarina. Directed by Kevin Reynolds. Let's not do anything rash here. I mean, uh, are you sure she's worth all this? I mean, she never does stop talking. She never shuts up. I noticed. What is it then? Huh? It's the map. She's my friend. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. Happy New Year, listeners. It's Gally, the podcaster who is fluent in Portuguese. Greek. And it's Devlin, who's running desperately low on gojis. Bones to berries, veins to vine, tendons to trees, blood to brine. It's Matt in South Korea again. Oh, very poetic. Welcome uh, welcome back, everyone, and uh, and Happy New Year. Uh, everyone have a good holiday season. You see how I was non-denominal there, Devlin? Thank you very much. I much appreciate it. Uh, the war on Christmas continues. <laughs> And uh, we're joined by Matt in South Korea. So Matt, explain because I'm uh, I've never done it myself. South Korea Christmas, what's it like? It's getting there. It's getting there slowly. Uh, you can go somewhere like Starbucks and celebrate Christmas, but in your own home, you have to kind of just make it make it happen. Do your best. My parents were very kind. My sister was kind. Sent some uh, wrapped presents over to help it feel a bit more like christmas but yeah they're, they're getting there slowly they're, they are interested there's a red day which is a holiday on the 25th and we have the new year's day red day as well so uh today we're going to be discussing greta thunberg's worst nightmare come to life the infamous 1995 hollywood blockbuster waterworld chosen by matt so matt what made you think it was safe to go back in the water 25 years later? I can trace my first viewing of Waterworld back to the summer of 95 when it came out at either the Darlington ABC hey. or more likely the uh, Teesside Showcase, which Chris is familiar with too. Uh, and I went with my oldest friend, Rob Langridge, who I've known since uh, uh, even before primary school, I think. And I'm pretty convinced we went to the cinema together to see this one. I was actually reminded of it in 2013. Uh, my interest was kind of peaked again. And I discovered that fabled Ulysses cut uh, online of Waterworld. And I'd only ever seen the theatrical cut. But uh, recently after purchasing the new Arrow Blu-ray, uh, the film entered my consciousness again. And it's partly responsible for this choice. So don't blame me. Blame Arrow Video. Devlin, any memories of of this one on release? Um, not not a cinema release for me. I do remember that. I, I I did not queue up at the ABC in front of. Do you remember that big massive um tool shop next to the ABC cinema? No. Oh, it's like on the on the same street. I just remember like. 
for some reason, I have some really distinct memory of queuing up for Wayne's World ah. and being stood outside of a. There was like the. It was maybe two doors down from the cinema. There was a big old tool shop, and you used to have to stare at lawnmowers <laughs> and stuff while you waited. Yeah. I remember, like that that cinema was eight. So I remember literally queuing through an entire screening because it sold out just to wait for the next one. Like. I, that doesn't seem like a thing that anyone would do these days. Yeah, I've got nice memories yeah. of that cinema. I saw The Fugitive with my dad, and I saw Home Alone oh, cool. 2, Lost in New York, colon, Lost in New York with, with my dad too. Yeah. So yeah, I've got nice memories of the ABC. I mean, I definitely saw it, and I definitely saw it plenty. I don't think we had the video either, so I can, I can only assume this was a Sky Movies special for me. Um, it's, it's an odd one in that it's just a film that seems to have, always just existed like I, I don't remember it making a big impact which it must have done because it was a huge release and looking back across it as i've been doing for the last week or so um and remembering the kind of furore that that kicked up around it uh you know the spiraling budget and the rumors and the and the the, the kind of they was preemptively labeled as a catastrophe and stuff um i don't know whether a lot of that stuff really permeated when i was a kid yeah we were not tuned into that at all we were as far as we were concerned Waterworld was a hit you know uh we were about 13 yeah. or 14 at the time nobody raved about it but nobody complained either and we all watched it multiple times on a circulating mm. vhs tape uh, and I think I later taped it off the TV and watched it more times yeah. after that. But my friend, uh, my friend Dave, I always remember would quote the, uh, the Irish drifter, um, <laughs> the, uh, the paper. Have you ever seen paper? And he'd always <laughs> quote that. And yeah, I remember that very fondly too. My mate Dave, if you're out there, Dave Smith, Catrick Village, how's it going? This week has been like a, a trip down memory lane. I went to the cinema to see Waterworld because Kevin Costner was was my yeah he was he was my kind of son. I, uh, I gravitated towards him big time. And, oh, uh, not not maybe... your not your son. No, he wasn't my no. I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> my, la- him. my large adult son, <laughs> Kevin Costner, when I was ten. <laughs> no, no, no. It wasn't. Uh, I mean, maybe I wish I had, but no. Um, you know, he was a, he was a really important actor to me, he kind of, uh, been on a, on a hot streak and we've discussed him before in, in Dance with Wolves. So I'll maybe leave my affections and, and where Costner was for later in the episode. But, uh, I found it really interesting that, uh, my now, I forgot to mention this, but my now fiance, um, yeah, got engaged over the festival. Congratulations. Congratulations. Yeah. No, no. As soon as I said, oh, we're going to do, uh, Matt's chosen Waterworld. She was like, Oh, Waterworld. And she only knew it for all the things that you mentioned before, Matt. Infamous mm. problems. And basically, it's kind of renowned as, well, I didn't think so because she's not a, she's not a cinephile uh, at all. She's not interested particularly in, in the machinations of how films get made. But she uh, knows the reputation of it being a, uh, a box office flop, which is not entirely true. And like you said, that never permeated into my consciousness when i was 10 years old and i went to see it at the cinema um i just thought it was a a rip roaring swashbuckling film and of course i was going to mm-hmm. go and see it because it was starring my favorite my favorite actor and i saw it in a, an abc cinema as well in stoke on trent and I, I went to see it as well because um one of the other 
great idiosyncratic things about Stoke-on-Trent is we actually have our own water world. It is a uh, it is a swim. What do you call it? A swim park? Like a like a wet and wild type thing. It's a wet and wild, yeah, but it is called Waterworld, and it's in Stoke on Trent. And I used to go there every week. So when a film came out with the same title, you're damn right, I was there. To watch it. <laughs> One of the most interesting things I think, looking back, is the film's descent from the most expensive film ever produced in 1995 to somewhat of a cult film, and it's got this strange mythical mm. status in 2020. Uh, and Arrow Video, who usually release hard to find gems and kind of tart up the discs for the diehard fans, uh, they're actually paying so much attention to this mega budget movie. And they gave so many, so much time and so many bonus features to it. And, uh, we're not sponsored by Arrow Video or anything, but I'd recommend taking a look at that, uh, edition mm. if you are a fan of the film. By the end of this podcast, uh, it might be worth looking at the the Waterworld three disc set or the two disc set, which is pretty good too. It's insane that something so huge and so kind of mass pop cultural big summer release ends up on this uh, on this little cult label. It's it's bizarre, isn't it? It is a bit bizarre, and it reminded me a little bit of of what's happening currently and what just happened a couple of months ago with, say, Cats and what I think may be already brewing for Robert Downey Jr.'s Dr. Doolittle, where the knives seem like they're out for these particular big blockbuster films with A-list actors. And in this case, mm-hmm. Kevin Costner. I think he was he was on such a hot streak. He had a reputation as being quite a difficult actor to work with and very particular, which I don't think there's anything wrong with, with that in itself. But... I think the knives were out, weren't they? The media seemed to latch onto the idea that this is mm. going to be a stinker. I think they called it like, well, a bit like Dancers with Walls. They called it Kevin's Gate. I think yeah. uh, Fish and Fish Tar, <laughs> which is actually a really good one to coin. There was a lot of negativity surrounding the film. The production incurred huge overspends, delays. Uh, I think 157 days in total when I think they may have been scheduled for 60 or so. So it, one of those one of those infamous Hollywood production debacles. But, like, we've worked on films, and they all go over budget, and they all kind of get delays. I don't really... Not Dark I, Morning, Gally. I don't no, remember no, spending no, well, a new year on cash on that one. <laughs> no, well, well, I nearly went over the nine grand budget. Oof, almost. It's, it's happened to plenty of films whereby the pre-release buzz has been... They are spending a lot of money, and at least one person involved in the production is a difficult character. They did it to Titanic. Everyone thought that that was going to be like a full-blown catastrophe, right? Everyone's always waiting for uh, James Cameron's hubris to catch up with him. It seems that every time, <laughs> don't bet against Cameron. Yeah, they did it with because the the previous um, most expensive film of all time before this one was um, True Lies, which was mm. what the year before. And, yes, and people yes. thought that that was like a ridiculous, horrendous, wasteful amount of money to spend on anything. Uh, and then it comes out and it's a big success. And then, but I mean, the, the budget differential between that and this is honestly pretty shocking. Yeah, I think this uh, this came in. I mean, we have to take it at, at, at face value. Uh, I went on Wikipedia and I went, went on IMDb, but I mean, I don't trust them too much. But they said that the budget was about $175 million, which... For, uh, if you 
account for inflation. That is an outrageous amount of money in yeah. 1995. Uh, and they're, they're currently, uh, in 2020 saying that they've recouped 262, which if you take away half, which is probably what the universal get, then it's, it's a minor profitable film, but it's not, it's, you know, it's not a success, uh, as far as it, as what they would have probably hoped for. I've got a slightly different one. Oh, really? Go ahead. Contradict me. Well, in 2013, it says that they've earned a profit of 8 million, but that's only due to video sales and the TV licensing. So I, I think they are, they finally, you know, they're making a profit on it. Uh, but it's, it's too little too late as far as you know, the budget's concerned, but the, it's, it's estimated. I don't know how, but there was a producer on the, the really good, uh, Maelstrom, the Odyssey of Waterworld documentary. And, uh, he said that the negativity surrounding the film cost them maybe 50 million. I don't know how he figures that. I don't know how he worked it out, but yeah, they, they were really down on the, on the media and the critics at the time. I've seen, I've seen some very salty interviews with Costner around the time <laughs> of uh, him, you know, cause I, I don't, I don't think I've really, um, seen Kevin Costner speak very much. I think we talked about this at one point, Gally, um, over the course of this week when we were on the phone where we just said, um, uh, I was saying that I'd, I'd managed to find, um, like a Newsweek had what they call like the oral history of, of Waterworld. And it was, uh, Kevin Reynolds and Tina Majorino and, uh, Jack Black yeah. probably talking about, um, the making of, uh, of Waterworld. It wasn't particularly in depth, unfortunately. As far as these oral histories go, it wasn't one of the better ones I've read, but there was very pointedly no, uh, input from Costner himself. So, I don't really know what he's like as a, as a person, even through like media interviews and stuff. So these little clips and these little snippets that I saw of him, um, what looked to be on the junket talking some shit about the media in general, mm. uh, made me think that, you know, this was a pretty hostile, um, pretty hostile time for him. Yeah. There's one of him on a, on an Aussie mm. talk show. You can find it on YouTube. It's in three parts and it's a miracle that he doesn't throttle the, the presenter. He's really kind of. <laughs> going after him he goes he talks about his divorce he talks about the failure of waterworld he even starts pulling out the figures before costner's even on the stage and then costner has to sit there and endure this thing it's they're they're kind of playful with each other but you can tell costner wanted to take him down i think matt would you mind giving us a plot summary of Waterworld. Okay, would you like it in English or Portuguese? Uh, well, I think because <laughs> of um, the limited amount of people that can actually speak fluent Portuguese, uh, me being one of them, uh, best to go with English. Okay, all right. Hundreds of years in the future, temperatures have climbed, the polar ice caps have melted, and Earth lies beneath a watery grave. When grumpy, ruthless, wee-drinking, trimaran, manning, fluke of evolution, the mariner, played by Kevin Costner, Boards and atoll for trade. He's singled out as a web-toed, ear-gilled, icky-muto-freak. Caged and held captive, only to be freed by rubbish empty shop owner Helen, played by Jean Triplehorn. Following her demand, he take her, take both her and a mysterious tattooed prodigal child named Enola to the legendary dryland. Meanwhile, tyrannical dictator and pantomime ham, his deaconship, deacon of the D's, the Deacon, played by Dennis Hopper, <laughs> who now running dangerously low on go juice, is forced to expand his overgrown empire 
and upon discovering Enola may hold the only key to dryland, plans to acquire her, plunder it, and build a massive kick-ass golf course and roads and stuff. The deacon, along with the smokers, <laughs> ransack the mariner's boat and kidnap Enola, forcing the gentleman Guppy to venture out and rescue his friend. The mariner's fiery one-man siege aboard the baddie boat, the Exxon Valdez, is successful. He blows everything up, saves Enola, and using her tattered back map, leads the remaining atoll survivors to the real dry land, which is ripe with lush forests, fresh waterfalls, and wild horses. But sadly, in the end, the mariner must leave, as he simply doesn't belong. There may be other mutants like him out there, and he must find them. He bids farewell to Helen, Enola, and the others, and sails away toward another lonely horizon. Let's just get straight into it. The um, the film starts with the Universal logo and the Ident that was so infamous. We've seen it many, many times on some of my most favorite films. Uh, Jaws being one for me. And uh, and I do love the way that they just kind of hone in on the oceans. And then mm. we get narration from the trailer guy. And it almost feels like it was probably designed for the trailer. But it's a, I think it's a really strong way of getting us into this story. I really love a bit of like logo shenanigans. It was the first time I'd ever seen <laughs> I really feel like anyone mess with the logo like that. I think it's the first time anyone's really done it. Nice. I mean, I know they used to do the transitions, right, in... Um... Uh, in the Indiana Jones movies. Ah, the Paramount, the Paramount up to the mountain. mountain. Yeah, that's right. But that's, mm. that's, that's a, that's a mm. match cut. Whereas this is, yeah, they, they went in and they, they tweaked the actual logo itself, which is very cool. And we, uh, and we're introduced to our, well, we'll discuss this, but our hero character and, uh, and the world that's being presented, it's not unfair to say Mad Max on water is the elevator pitch. The writer, the original writer, Peter Radder, said how this this whole film was developed in the 80s during the the Mad Max craze where the idea is that it's really easy to do post-apocalyptic stories because they're quite cheap. And I totally agree. You know, all you need is a bit of weathered costuming, a derelict land and people running around, uh, you know, trying to trying to escape this dystopian future. And I it, always, it reminded me of Cyborg, which is that was exactly what I was <laughs> it was thinking. the one, wasn't it? Which, Cyborg um, is so cheap but yeah. easy to do. It's just it's just people walking around with because with uh, uh, Cyborg. Because I mean, me and you, Gally, have a have a long history with the film Cyborg. We watched it many, many, many times. And and the story behind Cyborg is fascinating in that it was uh, a Spider-Man movie that fell through because um, Canon Films uh, uh, lost the rights. Uh, or realized they couldn't afford to, to continue with the film. So what they did was just cobble together whatever shit they happened to have. And they got, oh, what's the name of the director of that? Oh, he's a Asian filmmaker, isn't he? It's, uh, uh, oh God, it's the same guy who did like Doll Man. Uh, I want to say Albert Pyun. That's the guy. Yes. Yes. Uh, they basically just said to Albert Pyun, you got two weeks, mm. write something, use most of these costumes and these sets and of course the first thing he came up with was like a post-apocalyptic uh survival type thing but also with cyborgs i think that it sort of tells doesn't it in um in how concise that opening narration was over the universal logo which you know like it is it's 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 a fairly simple thing to be able to put forward a simple thing to put forward but an extremely difficult thing to execute when your yeah. your dystopian future is 
all on water. Yeah, they wanted it to be cheap, and that was, you know, why they were ripping off Mad Max in the first place. But as soon as you put something on water, um, I, I think Corman was involved originally, and he didn't. He, he said, "And yeah. it'll cost five million if you want to do it on water," which was, you know, again, generous. But um, apparently Reynolds called uh, Kevin Reynolds, the director, called Steven Spielberg and asked for advice. And Spielberg just said, "Don't shoot on open water." That was his only thing he said to him. And of course they had to. Mm-hmm. And in many yeah. ways, it, it lends to the to the performances. The actors are really interacting with the water, and you can tell that there's uh, there's real threat at times. Uh, there's a lot of practical action and some real threat, but. Uh, shooting on water is always a huge mistake and uh, the guy that shot Jaws should know better than anyone. We're introduced to our main character who is our Mad Max archetype, drifter, the mariner. And honestly, I'd forgotten and I thought watching it this week, because it's been a long time since I've seen Waterworld, I thought I was being, I thought it was almost like they were trying to be satirical when they're introducing him. And he's taking a piss and he's, uh, he's, he's filtering it and drinking it. And it's really, really quite strange. How, at what point in the scripting process do you reckon the introduction of your lead character drinking his own piss came in? Do you reckon that was like a day one? Devlin, like... according to the writer and the documentary, uh-huh. it never left any of the drafts. So Fair this, play. this script went through, I think they said 36 drafts and that introduction of the Mariner always stuck and the justification he gave was that he wanted it he wanted the irony of introducing a world called water world but where water is so scarce so the idea is that he he literally has to piss filtrate it and drink it and that's why he's like got his finger and he's rubbing it in mm-hmm. and i guess it also is the reason why it never rains in water world because that was my immediate uh, <laughs> thought was well, when it rains, you can just drink some water, but you, yeah. it's always in sunlight. We never see any kind of rain. And also the Bear grills technique of pissing through your pants and just filtering <laughs> it that way obviously hadn't been uh, considered. <laughs> I, try not, I, I try not to get bogged down by movie science because I feel like that is a way for you to make sure you'll never enjoy anything ever again. But a few things came up because... I know we don't like to do this too too soon in this, but I found this film a little difficult to get through. So my my mind wandered a bit. Um, at what point do you reckon re-drinking your own piss that it would essentially end up with the consistency of like jam? Because at some point, <laughs> it's it's, you'd think it would just keep thickening up. This film is primed for Mythbusters, for those douches who do cinema sins, <laughs> any, any kind of like individual who gets wrapped around the axles about nitpicky mm. logical science stuff. I, I meet the yeah. film halfway um, and just treat it all as conceits, but there are a lot of things that push the threshold. Like why, why would you go with, with piss rather than some sort of desalination like if you've got all that time on your hands to 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 design something that's going to allow you to have a drink yeah i would go see i would go see what well radda talked about that in the the documentary a little bit he had he had a different system before that but uh i thought it'd be cool to have like a Pee Wee herman uh, breakfast making 
machine on board <laughs> and use that but well i think had uh had they actually stuck with robert zemeckis we might have got that because he was originally slated to direct the film before um kevin costner insisted that it right be, yeah. Yeah. and costner actually kevin insisted Reynolds, it yeah. yeah it's true and well maybe i'll i'll talk about zemeckis and what might have been uh, a little bit later on but i want to stick with uh with their introduction of our hero because it's it's the way that it's composed, it's the hero shot. It comes up, and uh, and twenty five years later, as soon as as soon as Costa's on screen, a, a theme tune was going through my mind, and it was Shawn Michaels' intro in the Attitude Era, the Heartbreak Kid, because <laughs> he's got he's got the tan, he's got the he's hair, got the look. <laughs> he makes all the he's girls go the wild, and then, really and, then later, and, and then later on in the film. Triple H turns up. Nord. I was like, wait a minute. Is this the Attitude Era Generation X? He does, he does have Shawn Michaels' entire, like, heartbreak yeah. hairdo. He's got the hairy chest. Yeah. Honestly, it was, um, I found it to be, like, some kind of light bulb moment in my mind where I was like, is he challenging Shawn Michaels? But, well, yeah. to be fair, so, this was 1995, which was, like, peak If you throw in kid. Sensational Sherry as a smoker, then... I just it, All it needed was, uh, was like, uh, the badass Billy Gunn and uh, the road dog, <laughs> Jesse Jade. But, you know, I was... I was Honestly, it kind of bamboozled me. Can we go back and talk about Costner a bit and how you felt about uh, Costner before seeing Waterworld? He's quite a mysterious actor. He doesn't really give you a lot. And uh, I talked about it in Dance of the Wolves, but he was kind of the Tom Hanks of that era. And then to see him in this, where he's this cantankerous, gra- like Grinch-like prick, really did throw me, throw me for six. Like I was not expecting Kevin Costner to be just so unlikable. It's really strange. Like the bodyguard as well. My mum loved the bodyguard, so I'd saw that loads of times too. Um, but I don't know. What were your thoughts on on Costner at that period? Uh, well, Robin Hood had somehow passed me by at the cinema. I had friends that saw it and kind of recounted it to me, but I was a huge Costner fan around that time. I was, uh, by the time Prince of Thieves was on TV, I had it on, or maybe I had a VHS and I was just watching that all the time. And it's strange that you mentioned a perfect world because I had a poster of that on my bedroom wall before I'd even seen the film. <laughs> that's, that's how much I liked, uh, <laughs> Kevin Costner. I, it was a pullout from a, from an empire or a total film, I think. And I had it alongside E.T. Mm-hmm. and Empire of the Sun. He was such a big deal to me. And we saw The Bodyguard, and I, I wanted to be Frank Farmer. It's amazing that I even know that his character's name is Frank Farmer. <laughs> I, I stuck up for his haircut. You know, every, everything. I just thought he was great. And uh, he was probably my number one film star at, at the time. I, I can't believe I forgot Prince of Thieves. That was the one. For me, that, that was the only film of, of his that was in my kind of consciousness. I was a, yeah, I was a huge fan. I remember going to, uh, I was visiting my aunt down in, uh, down in Surrey. We went to Woolworths in Surbiton. I don't know why I remember it, it was Woolworths in Surbiton, but it was. And I bought, um, uh, an action figure and they'd sold out of the Costners. So I bought the, um, uh, Morgan Freeman. Oh, I had that too. And it had, he had a jacket. You could take his jacket off and like put it on other car- yeah, yeah. 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 He was like a moral compass. Like he was America's darling who had like charisma and he was like quite accessible, I think. Unlike, and we, you mentioned it before, Devlin, you don't really get a sense of what he's like as a, as a person. So his films really were 
opportunities for you to just project yourself onto him because his star persona was so separate from his mm. clearly quite private life. And I still don't really get a sense of what Kevin Costner's like. And uh, But I think that's what I, I enjoyed watching his films because he was, it sounds bad to say he was an empty slate, but you could just... Yeah, there's no baggage. Yeah, there's no baggage. He's just a good guy. I think um, uh, Elliot Ness probably left quite a big mark on his public persona as well, like this kind of completely virtuous lawman. I compare him to like Tom Cruise at the time. So Tom Cruise, huge A-lister, but he goes and seeks out the best directors and he tries to, you know, expand his his kind of talents and, and mm-hmm. stretch himself. And Costner, the fact that he decides to not go with Bob Zemeckis for this and instead gets uh, Kevin Reynolds, who's John Prince of Thieves. They've had previous success. He did his first film, Fandango. So he's a friend. Also, I mean, we we mentioned that Reynolds was on set on um, uh, uh, Dances with Wolves. Buffalo supervisor. Yes, <laughs> Buffalo supervisor for sure. And and the fact that he, he pulls in his friend as opposed to going with someone who might stretch him as an actor, um, I think speaks volumes really. And it's a shame because I think maybe another director who could stand up to him and challenge him, maybe we get a better Kevin Costner performance in this because I do think he's... He's not very good in Waterworld. I, I, mm. I genuinely, I really disliked him, and it's not just written on the page; it's in his performance too. It's it's odd as well that the that Kevin Reynolds came back because, um, by all accounts, including Kevin Reynolds' own account, they fell out massively uh, in the post production on Prince of Thieves when Costner kind of tried to hijack. Basically, he tried to steer the edit. Um, in his own favor. Apparently he was a bit pissed off at how much Alan Rickman screen time there was. I don't know whether that is some sour grapes coming out, but they were on the outs, but they both were approached to do this film and they both agreed to do it, but they spent the entire time not being able to agree on what film they were making. Yeah. It's kind of strange mm-hmm. when you see uh, Kevin Reynolds and you listen to him speak, he actually sounds like Costner. And he looks a little bit like Costner. They could be brothers. Yeah, it's strange seeing him in the the documentary now. I think Costner's got a bad reputation, but I enjoy him and I enjoy his interviews. And if you love him or hate him, he was on this set for 157 days working six days a week. And he's a rebellious kind of guy. He knows how to control things in his favor and he knows how to run a set. And I've heard stories from him uh, in interviews talking about making his costume bloodier on a certain film. I can't remember which one in order to dictate what may have happened to him off screen. So he's kind of using continuity to his ad- advantage in, in order to, to push the film and the story in, in the direction that he wants it to go in. Uh, I've, I've heard stories mm-hmm. of him telling the actors and the camera department to all just take a break. And let's just, let's just wait for a while and let this simmer down. And he overrules directors often. And if, if it, if Costner gets it into his head that he's got a better hold on the material than the people around him, he won't hesitate. He'll just take over. And, uh, that's really clear in the case of, uh, both Robin Hood and Waterworld, I think. You're absolutely right, Matt. He's got a, he's got a pretty toxic reputation. And for the longest time, he was the biggest star in the world for us. And now he's just been kind of consigned to 
side characters. I loved seeing him in, in Man of Steel when he appeared. He was great yeah. in it, even if you didn't agree with the character. Yeah. And he was really good as Pa Kent. It's just some of the words he said were a little bit like, mm, it's a bit strange. Right, like his presence, it was, it was nostalgic, but, okay. but it, it felt right to me. Yeah, yeah. It, felt, it felt like really good casting. And I think, um, you know, hopefully he can come back and, because I do miss him in a weird way. I don't know why. It's, I messaged you guys last night and just said it's complicated, but I kind of want Kevin Costner to come back. Uh, but yeah, yeah, no one else does it, appears. Like, no, no one went to see Three Days to Kill. No, I'm, I'm with you. I didn't see that, but I'm with you. I, I want him back too. Another Western would be great. More Westerns. Yeah, we well, did, um, I, I, I never saw the miniseries that he did with, um, with, with Reynolds. With, with uh, Reynolds. Yeah, with back. Kevin Reynolds, uh, uh, and Bill Paxton. I, I yeah, didn't Hatfields see and it. McCoys. And, uh, the, the, it's definitely worth a watch. And Open Range, the Western is, is terrific too. So I'd, I'd have more of that, please. Yes. One of the things that I really enjoyed about Waterworld is the first 30 minutes, which I think are really strong. Where yeah. we're introduced to the world. Okay. We can say what we will about the science behind piss and drinking it. But we understand that life is tough and they establish that and that you can't trust anybody. All mm. of this really works. So when we get to the Atoll, which is an unbelievable set, which I believe mm. they spent a third of their budget on, and it's a practical, physical set floating. I, 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 heard, the, I heard the number five yeah. million. And it sank oh, as well. It was more than that, Devin. It might, yeah, it sank. They, they, had to make, it. they had to make it again, yeah. And apparently uh, a thousand tons of steel... Uh, taken from the island in Hawaii and then shipped in from America to rebuild it. Absolutely incredible. But you get a sense of the Mad Max world. And this feels like Thunderdome, right? When they're in Barter Town. It's the oh, same yeah, absolutely. Kind of thing. Yeah, the, the Western is a really good shorthand. And I think the, uh, it, it's a watered down Western, like literally. And that, that entrance to the atoll with the strangers all watching the mariner as he enters, it could be any saloon from any Western. It's the exact same thing. You've got the genre expectations of a Western. And there's a the really nice moment as well where Costner um, pushes the strange guy along the bar when he's at Helen's shop. There's this guy kind of staring at him. He's kind mm. of too close. And instead of just saying anything, he just pushes him kind of away from him along the bar which which feels very you know cowboy-esque you've also um you've you've got uh triple h i can't remember what his <laughs> actual character name is his name his name his name's nord yeah um <laughs> him and the kind of the you know the, the creepy old fellow who just wants a little sip of his hydro right as far as setting up very quickly what we're about to see is really effective and and in, like you say back at that that kind of early sequence where he uh he destroys that mm. dude's boat and leaves him to be kind of picked apart by yeah. the smokers. Uh, in which you also find out that the people within Waterworld call yeah. it Waterworld. Drink. You have to take a drink every time they say the title. I've seen your boat before. Haven't seen you. Took it legal. Previous owner was dead at a tiller when I found it. You had another hour before I created it up again. <laughs> Just improving my means. Well, I owe you then. No thanks. I got all the supplies I need. Just came from an atoll. Eight days east if you're interested. Two drifters meet. Something needs to be exchanged. I know the code. But I'll give you this one for free. 
Nothing's free in Waterworld. <laughs> But that also established how ruthless the Mariner was. He kind of does a gesture of like a cutthroat gesture as well, and uh, it's like he's out for himself, and he he doesn't care about the lime thief, and that's that's that. No, no, you you're absolutely right. And the other thing that it also establishes is the um. You know, we've made a little bit of joke about it with the Portuguese Greek, but he speaks Hindi initially, that all the languages are all messed up. And it's one of the things that I quite enjoy about this whole first act is that it's world building. But I think we've come to a point now with films where everything is over explained because of fear of people nitpicking it and pulling on threads. And I, it, a lot of this film reminded me of the first Star Wars, which is Obviously, because Rise of Skywalker is currently out in cinemas, so Star Wars is is fresh in my mind. But not everything is is explained. It's just here's the world, here's how people interact with it. You get little inflections, like when he gets into the atoll and you see that people are being recycled. There's no real explanation of that. You just that's how they bury their dead. They recycle them. What is that green goo? I don't know. But do I need to know? Not really. <laughs> I have a thing on the green goo. <laughs> I've got a, uh, it was one of the only color themes I managed to see. I tried to do my A level uh, film analysis of the of the colors, and the uh, in, as far as the design, I noticed this color theme with the, the the fluorescent green. It shows up mostly in the costumes of the bad guys as this sludge smeared across Triple H's jacket, and it also appears in. Uh, like uh, the, the recycled urine is is kind. Of, it looks like Mountain Dew. It's kind of kind of green, and then uh, the gasoline or the go juice, as the deacon calls it, is kind of green. Mm. There's a green syringe when they're they're trying to make Enola talk and kind of threatening with a with a green syringe, and there's this whole kind of radioactive waste theme, which kind of ties into. Mm. There's a sign aboard the D's as well where it just says "Nuke the whales," so. They're kind of playing on those uh, the anti-environmental uh, bad guys, and and mm-hmm. I, I think the fluorescent green is is kind of a, a suggestion of a radioactive uh, element. You know, they're, they're kind of making the bad the bad guys stand um, out by giving them green kind of streaks to their clothes and things. The township, the atoll, I found this to be the best thing and and the most frustrating thing about this film because. I'm not going to get into the attack too soon, but everything with the with the atoll is my favourite stuff in the film. And they, I think they blow their load too early. Uh, yeah. can, can you can I say that? It reminded me a bit of um, I remember when I went to the cinema and saw Superman Returns, and the first thirty minutes, there's the um, he rescues Lois in the plane, and I was like, oh my god, this sequence is incredible. And the film never ever gets to that moment again, and it's just two hours of just boring sludge. Well, I think they had other stuff for, for the middle of the film. The, the, the act that you have a problem with, I think there was originally more in there. There's actually another faction called the Slavers right. and there's a lot of their stuff that was written out. So I, I think in terms of, you know, because their their name is, is mentioned. The, the only time they're actually yes, they're in the theatrical is when you know the scene where um, Costner is going towards. Uh, there's kind of a, a floating like a buoy, like a giant buoy, and there he's oh, making yeah, them yeah, wave yeah, yeah. like yeah. marionettes. And I think they're the slavers, as mm. far as I can work out. That they, they were tied into this other plot. Mm. So I think there was a lot of other action that would have followed the atoll. And I think the the atoll attack was to say, we're going to give you what you would get at the end of any other movie, and we're going to give it to you at the beginning, and then we're going to top it. 
with with the D's stuff later on. But they with with that that's mm. the second act stuff eventually being cut out. It plays exactly like you say, Gali. That it, it's it's the atoll is more impressive than the than the final scenes in in many ways. It, it just it felt like such a waste because the the world building and 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 what was interesting as well is the people in the atoll they're not very likable either. So <laughs> I was sort of watching it going, right, who do I gravitate towards? And at the at the minute in the first act, Costner's this loner drifter. I'm okay with it at the minute. Later on in the film, I have issues and we'll get to it when we come to it, that, that aspect in the story. But the people at the atoll as well are just strange and not likable. And the only people that we, that we have any sense of, of maybe attaching ourselves to is Helen and Enola. Well, there's, um, there's that, that kind of bearded lawman guy who's trying to calm everyone down. Yeah, I like him. I like him. But he gets a little impression. But he gets really <laughs> sidelined very quickly. He appears in the balloon is, later, but I don't know what he does in between. There's something that was cut out that was very important that there's a, a key piece of information that's glaringly missing from the theatrical version. And we should really, if we're reviewing anything, we should review the, the theatrical cut, but we, we, we can mention some mm. of the, the extended edition things, I suppose. But there was this trial by idiots sequence at the atoll where, uh, they, they've got the mariner in the cage. And they've discovered all of his f- strange foreign gadgetry. And, uh, one reactionary guy thinks that the Mariner's old clarinet is a smoker spy's listening device. And he has a thigh master as well. Mm-hmm. And he thinks that's a torture instrument. <laughs> and, uh, and, and at that point we see Helen sticking up for the Mariner for the first time because the, that mob is crying out for the Mariner and Enola to be killed because the Enola is going to lead the smokers to, to the atoll. And, and that drives Helen's need to leave. And it puts a clock on the action too. Uh, in the theatrical that they're leaving, the theatrical says that they have to leave within a week, but it never explains why. And in the Ulysses cut, you actually uh, find out why, and it gives it more dramatic tension and explains why the characters are doing Mm -hmm. the things that they're doing. The, the Ulysses cut in that regard and we'll we'll make mention of it now. It's extended scenes. There's there's scenes that are, have been excommunicated from the theatrical cut. There's extensions, lines, all of that. It's it's a fan edit that was popped onto YouTube, and then Arrow have remastered it and and put it out as a as a cut. I believe that even in the in the states, like the Universal DVD or the Universal Blu-ray, is also essentially their version of the Ulysses cut. Oh, right. Okay. I didn't know that thing that the American TV really likes to re-implant any deleted scenes back into the movies, regardless of whether they're any good or not, just to allow for more advertising (laughs) space. And, uh, Waterworld had an extra 40 minutes of, of footage. No one cares if it's any good. They're just putting it in. And, it aired on TV as, as a a two night special event on ABC. And, but it was censored for the nudity and violence and language. So the, the, the fan edit had this problem of, um, what do you take from the theatrical and what do you take from the TV version? The original, uh, Ulysses cut, the first version I saw had, um, it, it was, it was very distinctive when it cut from the, the Blu-ray, the theatrical Blu-ray to this, kind of dvd cut of the of the tv version uh when it cut back and forth but the new one has been completely remastered and looks looks great but that's that's originally where it came from the ulysses cut comes in about 
two hours, 57 minutes, which is a long, long haul for anyone. But, you know, mm. I, I like to, mm-hmm. I like to kind of pick and choose what I, what I like from it. I want to see everything because I feel like it was kind of unfairly taken away from Reynolds and, uh, and then kind of butchered and then everything was just kind of thrown back in. So you have to kind of make your own cut of Waterworld in, in your mind. A lot of people aren't going to have the patience to do it. But um, as a fan, I, I can kind of look at it that way. One of the people we are introduced to when we're at the Atoll is uh, is Helen, played by uh, Janine Triplehorn, who um, I've always got mixed feelings about her. And uh, I've always seen her, and fairly or unfairly, I've always seen her as kind of the other woman. She plays second fiddle in Basic Instinct. She's good in it, but she's second fiddle to Sharon Stone. Uh, I mean, forgive me, my taste is varied. Uh, she plays second fiddle to Gwyneth Paltrow in Sliding Doors. Uh, she plays literally mm. the other woman in that. Dependable, never, you know, never a solid actress, but she's not a star. And I think that this film needed the Helen character to be played by a real strong female actress. I was thinking like, I mean... It would have been weird, but Demi Moore or Sandra Bullock or someone who could, who could challenge our attention with Costner. But then Costner has to deal with them and that's never going to happen. It's never going to get, it's never going to get past <laughs> it. I think that, that you have to have a, a relatively demure actress in, otherwise he's not going to go for it. Well, I disagree. Bodyguard. Whitney Houston's the star in that film and, and Costner manages to, to do his thing while still uh, sort of working with a really strong female presence. Yeah, he said she was the prettiest and uh, best singer around. So he, uh, Costner was really for um, <laughs> Whitney in that one. So he, yeah. he wanted her. It, it makes sense because, um, because she's not a professional actress. So it would make sense that maybe, you know, as much as she's she not going like to outshine presence. him. Right. Yeah. Well, the romance is sold in that, but maybe it had something to do with a, a really good song. And maybe not, maybe not their, uh, their chemistry on set. I genuinely, genuinely believe that this film would have been a bigger hit <laughs> if they brought Brian Adams back. I was thinking it immediately. I was like, right, what is it that made like Prince of Thieves? Apart from Alan Rickman, what is it that made Prince of Thieves such a massive pop culture staple that everybody yeah, has? Everything to see I do. It? And then I thought that's, that's what it is. Cause you know, they ended up, uh, Brian Adams fucked off to go do the, Three Musketeers song instead. Well, it, it was number Stewart. one for nine years. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Our entire childhood's <laughs> blighted. It, it did lack some of the fun, I think, of, of, uh, of, uh, Prince of Thieves. It, it has, uh, a lot of the things in common. It has the same director, it has the same star, but there are a couple of other things. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of things that are evident in the Atoll attack. There's a, a play, there's a kind of uh, shot where a javelin spear kind of goes into someone and it's just like Azim's spinning scimitar sword. Mm. And then th- there's this great shot where the mariner swims underwater and then pops up and he, and he kind of whips <laughs> someone with uh, whatever he's yeah. holding. And that, that was very Do reminiscent of, that. of, of Robin Hood. Do more of that. Yeah. And then the other thing I noticed was the, the death of the Irish drifter. You know, that nice rod. I like that rod. You know, that guy. He, that, yeah. And he, he was, uh, the way he dies is almost identical to, um, the sheriff in Prince of Thieves. Oh, he, yeah, he, yeah. He's stabbed and then he kind of lurches towards, uh, Marion 
and he lurches towards the the couple uh, uh, Enola and Helen on the boat and then he collapses at the right at the the forefront of the frame and it's exactly yeah, the same with a with a big uh, big face full of spit oh well. yeah that spit's great and uh, yeah so and then you've got all the Errol Flynn stuff that clearly inspired it all of the the rope mm. swings and the flaming arrows and telescopes and you could tell that um that they were that they loved those little bits because every time somebody swings on a rope they do a little pirate music yeah there's yep. a little sting in the score whereas the rest of the score is is kind of a little of a mishmash well the score is an interesting thing there was originally a much darker um uh score by uh, a guy called Mark Isham and uh, oh yeah yeah he he scored it and they called it too ethnic. It's always worrying when the studio calls something too ethnic. Oh, but um anyway they 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 sacked him off and then they got um James Newton Howard in but he had no time to make a new score. So uh right. he- heroically Hans Zimmer gifted him his entire sample library and he managed to put together this this much more old school epic swashbuckling pirate adventure theme. What is going on with the adult subject matter in what I have been sold initially as a swashbuckling adventure film? Why is everyone talking about having sex in this, what seems to me to be a bit of a, a kind of a family adventure film? The inhabitants of the atoll come to the mariner and, and they say, oh, um, we need your seed because uh, you know, she, she's fresh and they present this very, very young girl. Listen, it's post-apocalyptic. I understand the realities of the world is there will be inbreeding, there will be cannibalism, but all of these things should be reserved for Vigo Mortensen's The Road, not Kevin Costner's Waterworld. Yeah. You may have noticed us burying a citizen today, but that makes room for one more. I'm not staying. Oh, we're not asking you to. All we want is you see. We can look to our own for impregnation, but too much of that sort of thing gets undesirable. When she's pregnant, you're going your way with all the supplies you need. You don't have anything. You're dying. No man stays out that long and turns down a woman. He's hiding something. Maybe he's a smoker spy. What does a director do? He helms tone. That is his main, main job. Obviously, we talk visuals and we storytelling, but it's all about tone. And one of the big problems with this film is tonally, it's all over the place. It's a proper mishmash. So it's indicative that the score was changed to be more adventurous, more Errol Flynn. Yet we have this weird, dark subject matter in our Kevin Costner film. Very odd. For me, the that that scene where the the daughter is offered up to the mariner kind of serves a purpose. It it it, it totally it's kind of unusual, but it it does serve a purpose to to make them suspicious of him as a man. Uh, and eventually, that they kind of figure out that you know no man would turn that down. And they kind of inspect him and, and realize that he, he's a mutation and he has, <laughs> uh, gills and, uh, things like that. So I guess it leads to something, but I, I think you're right. It's, it's a little uncomfortable to have, um, 
some of these things in a family film. But if, if you look at Robin Hood, that there's stuff in there that's really unusual. There was stuff that was cut out with the the witch actually yes, being um, uh, the sheriff, the sheriff's mother. And uh, there's a great extended edition of that, which is really similar in a way. It really fleshes out, you know, what Reynolds is doing. But um, yeah, it's it's just odd, odd tonally. But I I like that darker stuff. But uh, yeah, I I agree with you. It's kind of unusual because we've we've already said that this is basically it's a Mad Max, specifically a Mad Max two ripoff. At least that's how it started life. Like it, it became other things, and other people kind of threw stuff in the pot. But I mean, it genuinely was supposed to be a Mad Max two ripoff. But Mad Max two has the advantage of being an explicitly violent, very adult film. Mm. Um, so I guess you can't really confront like the realities of a kind of broken down post-apocalyptic society without getting a bit dark. But, um, yeah, I guess it's, it's in the presentation. It, it does from, from everything I've heard, it seems that Costner was pushing for it to be more bleak, right? Also Devlin, Mad Max 2 has the luxury of being an independent film. Yeah. This is a, this is, as we've already established, the most expensive film to date in 1995 hmm. so that dictates that you need to start painting your canvas with broader brushes so all of that kind of interesting darker subject matter it it, it has to fall by the wayside because there was a i mean like every film in the 90s and 80s there was a toy line by kenner for Waterworld, and uh, I, I found one uh, oh, on Amazon. Up. I'm looking yeah, it up right now. Look it up now. There is a Triple H Nord figure with bazooka. <laughs> with a bazooka and and an accompanying. Does he have a bazooka? No, never. Uh, and an accompanying crab, and it's oh currently God, selling on Amazon amazing. for forty five quid. Again, what wow. is this stuff doing in my? Kind of oh shit! Kid, you can get the trimaran. Yeah, you can. Ninety dollars. Not bad, eh? Not bad. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty cheap for a for a twenty five year old toy. Well, so that that trimaran is fucking ace. I don't think we pointed out. No, no, we we will get that opening, the trimaran. in that we opening sequence where he where he smashes that dude's little boat up and takes you know for having it's his so lines. cool the the telescoping mast and apparently it cost a million dollars just for one of those things and they said in in the documentary they said uh, well how much is this gonna gonna cost and they're like well two million and he said well you said one he said yeah but you need two of everything like every jacket you need two <laughs> of it on a movie every hat you need two of them just in case something goes missing or gets damaged or or whatever. Wow. So apparently that it's it's you know close to two million for a couple of those trimarans. The attack on the atoll. This is where we're getting into what I loved about it. Practical effects, stunt work, action, visceral. Uh, it reminded me of mm. of because we just we did Terminator not long back, and I went back and watched all of them. And uh, there was a sequence in Terminator Salvation where John Connor's in a helicopter. And it's basically a children of men rip off shot where the camera spins round and we're inside the, the helicopter and the whole time the perspective is John Connors and it's totally weightless. It has no impact and it does nothing for me. The attack on the, the atoll is awesome. Like you're watching people literally crash into walls, fly in the air. Explosions going off. Uh, I absolutely adored it. It's squibs going off. Yeah, 
this this whole attack is the best stuff in the film. Well, retroactively, it's kind of been spoiled for me because of these stage shows that they oh, that they're I doing. I saw it the at, stage show when I was uh, a kid. I loved it. <laughs> You've really seen it. I've really seen it. Yeah, I saw it when I was a kid. Wow. Matt, I I have also I've been I've I've been to Universal Studios Hollywood and uh, I've seen it. Uh, I've seen oh, the Waterworld stage lived, show. Have I? <laughs> no, you haven't. And dude, when you go and see it. All of a sudden, all the story problems, all the character problems in this film are rectified in the stage show because it's all in <laughs> yeah. the all. And is the, the Deacon... average drifter there though? No, they no, get rid of no. him. Why would you have the paedophilia in your stage show? Well, uh, there's no, children it's... around. Yeah, you got to <laughs> get rid of it. It's um, yeah. What it, it, the uh, popularity of it is is insane. I looked I looked that up because I remembered that stage show from when I was a kid, and then I looked it up, and that the um. So they've, it's also at the Universal Studios in Osaka and it's, uh, it's at the Universal Studios Singapore, which was only open in 2010. Mm. And they still wanted it in. Uh, it's at Universal Studios in, uh, China, which isn't even opening for another year, but they are going to put a water world thing in. Wow. <laughs> well, as, as cool as it is, like, I, I find it like to be quite sanitized now because I've seen stuff like that on TV and it reminded me of watching that show, Hollywood's greatest stunts. Do you ever remember yeah. watching that on ITV? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, was awesome. th- that film was actually my first ever introduction to filmmaking. And I remember one episode in particular with the stunt work on cliffhanger, you know, when they, they transfer between the planes, they're trying to transfer the money on a, on a line between planes and cliffhanger. And yeah. in Goldeneye, there's a, there's a scene where Bond just uh, is crashing through buildings in a tank. Ah, and, yeah. uh, there was a great like look at the the stunt work on that, and it reminds me of like the, the these controlled fireballs and and things in these stunt shows and on kind of behind the scenes things. Uh, it, it's still really impressive, but the water skiers took me out of it completely. I mean, as soon as I saw those <laughs> water skiers, that was I just thought that's just stupid. But it, yeah. again, that echoed back to, to Robin Hood when, when they're breaching the walls of the castle and they're, they're launching Robin and Azim over the walls, um, to kind of infiltrate the castle. <laughs> and, and it was just kind of like that. It was kind of Reynolds and Costner doing the same, the same thing again. But yeah, you like the water skis, Carly? I can't believe you don't like that stuff. I, I mean, again, where the ramps come from? Why have they got ramps? What is this? This is outrageous. This doesn't make any sense. Did they water ski all the way here? <laughs> well, there's a shot where <laughs> they're being they're being pulled by seemingly uh, a plane. It's a plane. Flew by, flew by Jack Black. Yeah. That shot is incredible. I was just like, this is this is the fun adventure that. I yeah. think the film should have just that stuck does look with, cool yeah. with this. It looks amazing. I don't get me wrong. It, it is a bit goofy. It reminded me a bit of Hook as well. There's a lot of like goofy swinging yes. in Hook too. But this, this for me was, I, I was, yeah, maybe it's my age and, but I just love watching practical effects and stuntmen doing stunt things and the, the, the whole kind of unilateral use of CGI later in the nineties and then now it's slightly old, old thinking, but I just wish we could go back to, a bit well, isn't, more. Um, I've, I've, I've not seen them, but the, the, the last two Christopher McQuarrie Mission Impossible movies, as far as I'm aware, have mm. kind of gone back to this kind of thing, haven't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, he's a, Costner's really rivaling Cruz for, for all of these practical stunts. There's a couple that I, I love. There's the Mariner flying up the sail and he's got his, the knife in his hand and it's mm. really Costner. You can just see his face as clear as day. And then at the very end, there's the grappling hook slide on the, uh, on the Exxon Valdez <laughs> and he slides down, uh, by the, by the plane. And apparently Reynolds actually did that stunt first to prove that it was safe. And then he got Costner up there and Costner did it. And, and you can see him in, in close up. He's really doing it and you don't see that too much anymore. And that's kind of sad that that kind of filmmaking is disappearing. That hundred percent practical in camera aesthetic is going away in favor of uh, CG. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think the producers of Waterworld would have loved a bit of CG just to to help them along uh, with the, with the actual destruction of the set and some of the problems they had. You know, the the shot reverse stuff where they had to flip the set. Yeah, I just think this attack is amazing. And one of the things that it also does is it introduces our our villain, played by the villain of our time, Dennis Hopper, doing his Dennis <laughs> Hopper impression. Uh, I mean, he was he was so ubiquitous as a villain to He's me. He's bringing oh. that Super Mario Brothers energy. Oh, it, it, oh, it yeah. is you've, Super you've Mario made, Brothers. We made fun of IMDb a little bit, but there's actually some stuff on there about alternate casting that I always kind of respond to. There's um, the original choice. Apparently, the first choice was Jack Nicholson, which I can really imagine in that role, just just being being Jack. Well, there's a scene, isn't there, Matt, where um, they do the Joker reveal from Batman '89, when the when Deacon's lost exactly, his arm yeah. and he's yeah. doing the makeup, and the the guy, the, the the side character that's doing the makeup looks a bit like Tim Burton. <laughs> it feels very pointed, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I can totally see Jack Nicholson <laughs> does, yeah. doing it. Oh, oh, looking real good, yeah. There, there, all done. Now there may be some small problem in depth perception. Well, it better not screw up my short game. Well, looks good. Yeah, nice. Uh, yeah, I like it better than you realize. Much better. What do you say, Toby? The truth. Looks like shit. That's why I love children, no guile. <laughs> it does look like shit, and it feels like cold shit. Deacon. Sorry, uh, no, it's just that there's a problem in the pit. Maybe you should. Come. Oh well, that echoed back to you. Just talked about Hook before, and I, I always felt that uh, this kind of weird slapstick, inept thing he's got going on, like a he's behind you uh, <laughs> pantomime villain, uh, it is is more. It, it owes more to um, Dustin Hoffman's Hook than it does to Frank Booth. Uh, yeah, and and Hopper can frighten you just by looking looking at you, and uh, I don't know why they had to resort to all of this nonsense with, uh, you know, the slapstick and the 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 daft lines and things like that. I, I oh, think just a steely gaze yeah. would 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 do it. They they did play him as a as a bit of a punchline, which I guess I mean it it works in just kind of pure kind of entertainment but like it's a bit lowest common denominator entertainment but well okay. unusually well, the the deacon was originally called um neptune uh, in mm. the original rada drafts and he came complete with an actual trident and Brilliant. uh he, he sat on a clamshell throne and <laughs> he had uh mutant sidekicks which i, I thought was quite cool 
That and, would be cool. Yeah. But also, apparently, he would slap his sub- subordinates uh, with a wet fish if he was upset <laughs> with them. So, you know, it, it, it could have been worse. It, it could right. have gone another way. Just imagine That's... Gary Busey slapping someone with a wet f- <laughs> with a wet fish. I want in. I want in on that film. I would have liked the idea of the Deacon having um, uh, mutant sidekicks, just because. Uh, again, not to get too nitpicky, but when the reveal of Costner as a mutant happens, mm. and everyone on the atoll knows that he's a mutant specifically, not like what's that fucked up cut behind your ear. They know specifically that he's a mutant. And that they assume that they are gills. But you've never seen or hear about other mutations. As far as I'm aware. Unless there's mm. something I missed. Or that there was something in the other cut. And you know they were saying uh, at one point later. It's like oh maybe you should find some of your own kind. And he's adamant that there is none of my own kind. Um, it's kind of part of the the broader problem I have. Which is that there's there's not a lot to latch onto with the character of the the mariner um like max rockatansky can get away with being just a kind of twitchy violent kind of blank who just wants no part of uh, of civilization because we had a first film in which he was a, a a normal guy whose whose life was destroyed so he has a he has a backstory that he carries through all the rest of those films mm-hmm. whereas coming in cold to the mariner we we're not we're not entirely sure why he's such a dick. Well, we also Devlin as well. One of the other problems and the comparison with Mad Max is that we don't ever understand what he wants, what he needs, and what he feels about anything really. When he when his boat gets destroyed, mm. which is the essentially the same as when uh, <laughs> Max loses his car and his dog, it's played so flat. And it's just, uh, <laughs> that's my, my favorite delivery in the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. My boat. I mean, my boat. And you're like, wait a minute. Is that, that was the thing that you definitely loved. Yeah. And you're giving me nothing. Like, so, but, I, yeah. It, there's, it, but there's your, there's your opportunity for the first time in the film to show some actual, like, you know, cause he's a, he was a petulant asshole at other times. Like he flipped out at that girl for using his crayons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah why not why not just like you know it's like it's the depths of the second act dragon it's the point at which everyone's supposed to be at their most utterly fucked and that's the best he can come up with is my boat my boat well this is where I'm thankful I know you've you've kind of um, said that Hopper I mean he is just doing Hopper but I'm glad that he's not only chucking tins of smeat at his um, <laughs> at his followers, but he's also got some ham for us. Because if it weren't for him chewing it up, then a lot of a lot of the running time for this is going to be a real chore. Because, like you say, Costner's just not. He's either not giving it, which I, there's, it's a mix of two things. He's not giving it, but also the script hasn't got those moments where we can really understand him. And it's one of the things that. I don't mind having an unlikable character to follow, but I need to understand them. I need to understand what motivates them. And if I can understand them, then I can somewhat identify with them. And the one that I kept coming back to, and and hear me out, is the dynamic between the Mariner and Enola, 
reminded me of the first X-Men film. Do you remember Wolverine? Hugh okay, Jackman. Yeah. They both, um, mm. he's a drifter in that. He's uh, the man with no name because he's called Wolverine. I don't even think he knows his name's Logan or maybe he does. I can't remember. Um, but either way, they are, um, they have one thing in connection, which is that they both have a bit of an identity crisis. Wolverine doesn't really know who he is and what he is. And Rogue resents her powers. Wolverine resents his powers. And you feel that connection as you go through the film. I appreciate it's an ensemble and we have other stories to tell in that film. But that's the central, he's the central character in in X-Men. And they do a similar thing in Logan. And in this, I think they're trying to do that. They're trying to have a connection between Enola and the Mariner. He's different, she's different. But it never plays. It's like it's either just poorly written or it was cut out of the script. But I I don't buy it at all. So well, I have nothing to latch onto. For me, the Mariner and Enola is the, the the key to the whole thing. That's probably why I'm I'm such an advocate of the uh, Ulysses cut because there's extra stuff in there between the two of them that just explains it. First of all, Enola is alone, spelled backwards. Uh, it's also the name of the B-29 bomber, which was responsible for dropping the Hiroshima bomb, mm. the uh, Enola Gay. I don't know if that's tied in at all. Uh, and she's basically an outcast too. She was floated into the atoll, found in a basket of soil. And, um, is that, is that in the theatrical cut? No, you never, see, you know, you never see right. her in, in any cut. You never see her floated in, but, uh, well, Helen like, ex- do, do explains they, it. Do, she does explain it in the in the theatrical because I uh, must admit that if she did, I I blanked on that. Ah, well, maybe she does. But the, there's a conversation at the end uh, where they talk about uh, where they discover Dryland and yeah. they find the two bodies in the bed, which were hmm. I, I I guess Enola's parents or or caregivers, and they uh, have realised that they had to send her out. To, I, again, it gets a bit tenuous when you start explaining it like this, but. The, uh, basically Helen couldn't, um, bear a child of her own because of the atoll rules. You only let so many people on the atoll because of, to, to conserve the, the resources. And, uh, that's made much clearer in the Ulysses cut. She's not actually, um, her real daughter. She's just taking care of her. Um, yeah. and, and between Enola and the Mariner again, it, like Enola is complimenting the Mariner on his webbed toes. And she's the first person to ever do that. She says, Oh, I wish I had feet like his. And uh, what others are fearful about uh, or, or hate about the Mariner, she admires. And they're both isolated in their own ways and they're treated disrespectfully by others. And that's what, what binds them. I, in my mind, rewrote the film. And I think if the Mariner meets Enola and Helen and he rescues them or they happenstance they save him from slavers let's say and then the smokers are chasing them and the mariner then forms a relationship and then they go to the atoll at the end I think everyone's story arc kind of neatly comes together a bit more because what we have in the second act is almost like an episodic structure of just watching these characters interact. And we've already established that the Mariner's not given as much. Triple Horn is doing the best she can, but she's not got a lot to deal with. And Enola, I mean, she's not irritating. Normally, child actors can be quite irritating, but I think she's actually quite charming. I remembered her from Andre and Karina Karina. 
Um, so I've always quite liked uh, the actress, mm. and she turned up in Napoleon Dynamite. Is that correct? Yeah, she's great in Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah, she's good. And That's she's, right. Yeah, she's in Napoleon Dynamite, and she's not as annoying as an Anakin. You know, she, I think yeah. she's actually pretty good. It's it's a weird one because usually when you'd have like a kid actor, yeah, you're right. You would surround them with you know other people to carry the load, and mm. there is. I mean, they they admitted that they went ahead and shot this film without a script, right? Or they had a script, but it was unfinished, and that they said that they would just sort of wing it, and they brought in Joss Whedon. I think it was finished, but they were unhappy with it, and it was too late to change things because sets had already been built. Right. Yeah. I I believe as well in the documentary they talk about not having a third act, so everything, everything that they were leading up to was kind of, we'll, we'll deal with it when we get there. And you're right. They get Joss, they get Joss Whedon in, who pretty infamous in the nineties as being a, a bit of a story doctor comes in. He was fresh off of speed, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. Done speed. Right. Uh, that's why we get the uh, interactive television, huh, Jack? <laughs> and, and, and there's a, there's a couple he of. He said it was seven weeks of hell, Joss Whedon. That was a quote. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've read the, uh, transcript from the interview, which I think I can't remember which, uh, it was on the, the AV club. It was. Yeah. And, yeah. um, it's quite an interesting insight, especially because he's, he's quite frank and he's quite honest. And, you know, he says like just trying to work through dialogue and scenes with Kevin Costner was a, was a, a difficult one to navigate the uh, can i just stick up for the mariner and uh enola a little bit the, there's a couple of little things that i'm not sure i'm not sure which cut it's in anymore i'm just very confused <laughs> the uh the, there's a scene where um it, it plays as the first family kind of um uh, the, the three of them are a real family unit um where he he kills the the awful cg um sea sea monster Ooh. And then they, they, that was dreadful. And then they, apparently Reynolds didn't even want that in. They, they rushed it through and they, they thought it would add another little level to that scene and it just played terribly. It cost 35,000 or, or more for that one shot. But the, uh, there's, there's a scene where it just cuts from that to them eating the, the, the kind of the meal together and it's like a family environment he says to her listen to the world and don't move around so much and he's giving her advice and he finally gives them water because it's going to rain that night you don't like my singing do you mom says you don't like my singing because you can't sing Mm-hmm. Ever try and listen? For what? The sound of the world. I don't hear anything. That's because you're too loud and you're moving around all the time. Try sitting still. Eyeball? And then there's one more where he teaches her to swim, which is quite a, mm. a, a really nice moment between them. They they swim uh, under the water and they recreate the cover from Nevermind. And uh, <laughs> the, the Mariner actually smiles for the first time. I think that's the only time in the movie that you actually see him uh, happy. And he's part of this family unit and he kind of has acceptance from Enola. And I think by this point, 
Uh, no, it's actually later when he's kind of intimate with, with Helen. But, um, yeah, it's, it's beginning to come together, the three of them, uh, as a family unit. And I, yeah, I think it must just be a, a case of pacing issues then, because, um, the scene with the swimming is in the theatrical cut and the right. scene where they're eating the, the mega shark. Yeah, that's in too. Um, but the, and, and the, the discussion that they have, but the discussion that they have, or at least in the, in the, in the theatrical version is quite abrupt. Like he's still kind of essentially telling her to shut up. Yeah. But he is talking to her. Um, but yeah, I, I guess you probably just have to plant those seeds a little earlier or have them scattered throughout a little more. Or I just think that it just needed to be reshuffled and rethought that mm. whole section. Um, and like you say, it's so weird that they just drop in this, because the second act is just a case of another thing happens. It's uh, we got like what do they call it in the the you know the the old um uh, Brian Cox s- screenwriting bibles where it's like in the second act the you know the Joseph Campbell stuff. The yeah, second yeah. act is just uh, trials and and whatever. Ah, yeah, road road of trials. Yeah, so you know you just have to you just have stuff you just have little things. And right. In this one, it's. It, it really shows the joins when it's just, and then we go here and then this thing happens. And it really did feel like they just needed a bit, but it brings up so many more questions than it answers, which is, are mm. there monsters? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And, and the, the Mad Max element gets dropped as well because they're on the run, but they're not really, they're getting, we intermittently, the smokers turn up Jack Black with his plane, but that, that just yeah. all feels really, really flat. And it, properly derails this film and uh and matt i don't want to be the mariner of the three of us and be the grinch but the shorthand sequence when the mariner <laughs> teaches anola to swim yes recreating the nevermind image but it reminded me so much of the terminator and john connor sequence in t2 when Sarah, all it needed was mm. Triple Horn to have a little bit of narration and be like, in an insane world, right? The Mariner <laughs> was the sanest choice. Yeah. Well, she does literally teach him how to smile. It's the same thing. It just, it, it just, it really did. Uh, again, I think because the Terminator is at the front of my mind because we did it recently. Um, otherwise, I don't think I would have pulled that one out of my ass. But yeah, it, it, it just. I understand shorthand and these big Hollywood films, and that's what we come to expect. But it just never really is sold to me, and I'm never, I never believe it. And even in the final, uh, in the climax, when Anola's kind of talking up the myth of the Mariner to the smokers, and she's like, "What did she say about he can't die because he's got no name?" and and all of that is great. And he doesn't feel pity, yeah, you know, it, all of this mm. kind of stuff, but. I don't buy that she would look at, look up to him that way because he's one almost sold her for some sex with, with crazy Robin Williams, Irish guy. And, and he also definitely nearly gave up Helen until he had a bit of moment of clarity where he's went. And that doesn't make him a good guy that he almost did it. And then mm-hmm. went, actually, this is a bit wrong. <laughs> Which again, without getting into logical problems, everyone <laughs> smokes. And they, it's got paper, and then he's got paper in on his boat that that he didn't get from that trade. Very odd, very strange. 
it is interesting that that we that we are referring to the kind of the longer cut so much um mm. and i do I, I think you're right in that um at the time it seemed like his post production was scuppered it was a classic hollywood bullshit move of you've spent this much money on this film and you've shot for way too long so congratulations fuckos you have to edit it in 5 weeks yeah i believe, I believe was was what they were told that they basically had to slash their editing time in half they also promised uh, him a DGA cut. Um, yeah. And they, they said, if you let Costner and the producers into the edit room for a day, we'll give you time to complete your cut of the movie. And Reynolds agreed. And once Costner and the producers got in, Reynolds never got back into the, into the edit room. So I don't even know if he's seen the finished thing, if he likes it, right. what was his and what wasn't his. But I'm just trying to kind of piece together what it could have been. That my mm. review, my review of it would, without giving too much away, would be that, that there's a gem in there somewhere, but it, it, it's not the greatest film ever made, but it, I don't yeah. think it deserves to be ridiculed. Can I try and redress the balance? I feel like I've been maybe overly critical and to the point of being somewhat negative. Uh, one thing that I really do like, there's more than one thing in this film. I've talked about the stunts, talked about the action. Um, I think that the way that the film is shot, and considering the difficulties of shooting it on water, all of that stuff, the artistry and the craftsmanship. Well, one of the other things that I really liked was I quite liked some of the side characters, um, especially what I call the Hermit Oil Man, but his, uh, his, his actual title in the, um, in the cast is Depth Gauge. The old man who lives in uh, on the Exxon Valdez who measures the crude oil. Yeah, he's, he's got, great. He's, yeah, he's, he's brilliant. He's got about three or four lines. But well, it's absolutely brilliant. And it reminded me so much of, and we've, I don't know how we've managed to avoid it, but Mad Max Fury Road kind of feels like it, it writes quite a lot of the wrongs in Waterworlds because there's definitely some, some similarities there. The Morton Joe character, the, the kind of the incest and the, this, this population yeah. of people that are searching for, well, so trying to survive, but they're, they're, they're scavengers and they consume, which is very similar to the smokers. And, uh, but these side characters, they really do help this film. And I love depth gauge. And when he, when he goes out in a blaze of glory, there's one line, which is like, Oh, thank God. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> this guy's lived in a horrible existence and, uh, he gets his little moment where he gets, you know, it's such a, a little funny line. I, I loved it. I thought it was really good. And I think the film's got a few of them. He's one of my favorites too. I, I, there's another line in the extended where he says, uh, to, um, the deacon, he said, he looks up from his kind of oil hole on the D's and he <laughs> says, good morning or night, whichever it may be. <laughs> He's just down there all the time, like poor guy. And, uh, I, as well as him, my other favorite was, uh, I quite like Jack Black's smoker plane pilot. He was quite cool. And in some of the extended scenes, you can see him mime the word motherfucker. So that's quite. You know, that's worth seeing. And he gets mm. drunker and angrier when, uh, at, at the death of his friend. So that's kind of cool. And then there's the hellfire gunner. I think he's credited as mm. as well. And he kind of, he's wearing a pig. It lo- he looks like a pig. Oh yeah. And he kind of has soot in his eyes and he's the one who's towed into the path of, uh, well, that's Chuck, and, and why it? is he still firing? Yeah, yeah. You said it earlier. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, he, he, he's excellent. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Chuck. And he's, um, He's a great character too. Like those, those little, little touches are, are really well, nice. Well, even Triple H, I mean, 
he makes an impression. Uh, you may have seen the actor in Doctor Who, and uh, he's the judge in Batman Begins, the corrupt one. Um, the, that's the because oh, okay. I recognised his face, but obviously uh... I was thinking Triple H the whole time too. But all of those little side characters. I mean, I mean, even even though I don't like him, the um, the actor who plays the weird Irish pedo, uh, he brings much needed mm. energy in in that middle part of the film where at least mm. like I'm jarred into thinking, oh, okay, what's going on? Christ, this guy's like running around f- frantically saying gibberish. So it, the side characters in this do a good enough job, but I think. Fury Road really, it almost dates this film now because I think they, they nail a lot of the aspects that Waterworld kind of sets up, but doesn't quite execute. Also, like we were saying that, you know, one of the, one of the great things that we do admire about this one is the amount of practical stunt work and stuff. And yeah, somehow we managed to forget that Fury Road exists. Mm. And whilst it is CGI enhanced in places, the bulk of it is stuff that is actually happening. Well, I think we all agree on that. I think it's hard to recommend Waterworld to someone when Fury Road is out yeah. there. I, I don't know. You could yeah. you could do a Netflix. But, you know, we've all yeah. got time on our hands. You could watch, you could you watch, watch both. both. It'd be like a Netflix algorithm thing. Like, oh, you watch Mad Max Fury Road? Enjoy The Postman and Waterworld. <laughs> Has anyone seen The Postman? No. <laughs> I've never seen The Postman. I, I've seen right. the scene with Tom Petty, which is pretty cool. But uh, okay. other than that... No, it, it would appear that he really wanted this to be, um, you know, a serious kind of post-apocalyptic kind of. He wanted to be moody and he wanted to be like, like a super serious character study. And I guess he felt like that got watered down. I'm so mm. sorry. Um, <laughs> so, so he decided to have another crack at it, and this time he was like, "Well, I'm going to make it well fucking depressing," and and then he pulled it off. Yeah, I mean, he didn't learn any lessons from this, did he? He he actually directed and starred in The Postman, and that was almost three hours as well. And he he kind of plays the same nameless, laconic drifter yep. and a turned re- reluctant savior. It's the same thing. Mm. Yeah. Well, maybe he thought this one failed because of all the Kevin Reynoldsy swashbuckly fun stuff that we actually enjoy. Yeah, and Reynolds showed so- him, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> well, I. I like Reynolds more as a director. I think I'd rather. I think he's more talented as a director than than Costner. I think you know directors don't often get enough credit. I think for this stuff. And look, look at what Reynolds managed to stage on this film. Like with just with the Atoll mm-hmm. stuff alone, as an action director, yeah. he's just second to none. And and uh, there's a great clarity to it. You can tell what's happening and why it's happening mm-hmm. and to whom it is happening. And that is um, when you see a lot of of kind of big budget popcorn action film just that simple clarity of understanding what's happening is is a real skill that it's not something that all action directors have yeah i mean you, you could argue that there's some second unit in there and yeah um, absolutely. I, don't, I, don't know. I always i always feel like um nowadays if you're not scorsese or i mean even spielberg's kind of diminished with his returns but that Unless you're one of those, the, the kind of higher echelon visionary directors that they, they tend to just be taken for granted. Like, there's nothing wrong with Rennie Harlan. Like, he mm. stages action films, tells mm. a story, A, A to B to C. Okay. Maybe thematically he's not as interesting as a filmmaker, but for your popcorn blockbuster, 
you know, Kevin Reynolds, Rennie Harlan, those kind of guys. Rennie Harlan has the unfortunate thing of he has a direct comparison with a, a, a where he basically remade an action film, which was directed by, you know, one of the absolute greats. So you've got John Matinas Die Hard, and then you've got Rennie Harlan's Die Hard, which is basically the same story. Yeah. yeah. And whilst Rennie Harlan's Die Hard 2 colon Die Harder is perfectly serviceable <laughs> and, and a lot of fun, you know, you've you've got a guy who's a, a a league above him. But he did it, you know, he pulled it off. He pulled it off. I'm I'm with you, Gal. Like I think Reynolds is in the same the same kind of tier, isn't he? As though as as Rennie Harlan, and some yeah, some of those guys don't get the get the credit. But there's there's a lot of stuff in Waterworld. The action is not the problem. So if we're going to critique Reynolds, I guess we can pick apart his uh, his work with actors and and some of the the, the more emotional. Uh, aspects of the film that might be lacking mm, yeah but um yeah and, maybe and with like, any too yeah i think so but yeah. well yes like like you were saying ali it's 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 tone he just you know he doesn't manage to shepherd that tone as well as he did mm. pulled it off in uh in prince of thieves because it's uh even there's a lot of weird shit going on there it's still a lot of fun isn't it like it's weird that there's the it feels like the ham and cheese is intentional because it, yes. it seems like it's reynolds um proclivity to to do that and maybe even costness too you're not really too sure but that there's a lot of stuff in in prince of thieves that's kind of hammy and fun we we don't want to get into the private life too much because who are we but he was going through a divorce during Waterworld, and i do wonder if that had some effect on his performance as to why he's so um so grouchy uh and so distant and mm. cold isn't it weird how often that comes up in like in like popcorn cinema of uh you know oh they were going through a divorce because it's you know uh what's it called temple classic of doom. one yeah temple of doom is the classic yeah it's 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 weird how much it's like somebody you know we say like you don't want to speculate on people's private lives who are we but then the people themselves would admit like yeah i made the film specifically this miserable because i was fucking yeah miserable. and and i wonder if like when he mm. decides to smack a woman in the back with a big oar whether that was i mean oh, that, God, that, yeah. that was pretty violent like he didn't just give her a, a little love tap it's a smack like it's a ridiculous hit but yeah she's draped in a in a sail and then smashed on that's like a if that was a Columbo episode she's dead she's dead in Columbo. <laughs> <laughs> well we've we've avoided it and i mentioned it when i was uh trying to be funny with greta thunberg but the the kind of the social element or the social politics of it all and the kind of the hollywood left leaning eco-warrior climate change parable uh, is not lost in Waterworld. It's not subtle at all when you've got smokers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he wanted it to be an eco-parable, I think, uh, Reynolds. Uh, and and oh. a lot of his leanings as far as the the, the production were, were towards these um, uh, eco centric issues that were that were happening at the time and then the smokers it's very on the nose but you know you can see what he was going for yeah and i i don't know how yeah. they got away with it but getting a um an actual portrait of the captain of the exxon valdez and having Dennis <laughs> say to him that we will uh we will revise history as uh as we've both got tarred reputations is just um again they're the moments that genuinely i know it's a bit hammy but give me more Smeets. I was I was quite happy with it. Did you feel like it maybe went a bit too far when they when they fired up the old convertible and sailed around to the Blues Brothers? 
it's it's the only time something like that happens. It's the only time a song plays. Yeah, it it plays really lame. There's a, <laughs> it really does. It, that's where it's like a pantomime. It, yeah, it's like it's playing to the kids at that point. Well, and, that is uh, Super Mario Brothers. I don't know any it? kids that would even think that was cool. Well, do you want to talk about how the Deacon comes to his um his explosive demise? Uh, the way that the Mariner kind of stops him in the plane, and and then we have this weird bungee moment, which. Well, the balloon, the, the bungee moment, I actually rewrote. I, I, you've done a bit of rewriting. I did a little bit of rewriting too. It's kind of fun to feel superior to these, these people. <laughs> fan fiction. But there's a, there's a bit at the end. Yeah. It, total fan fiction. It, it plays into the Mariner and the Enola moment where uh, he teaches her to swim. And I just thought it would be cool if they altered the, the ending. So that instead of the, I always had a problem with this bungee cord. Uh, I don't know how a rope can function as a bungee. And I'm not usually a stickler for, for things like that and details, but it bothered me when I was 13 and it still bothers me now. And I, I would have had the Mariner dive off Gregor, who by the way is one of the most annoying characters. I would have had the Mariner dive off Gregor's balloon and pull Enola down beneath the water out of danger. And then have the, the, the jet skis crash. And then it would have neatly resolved that arc between the two of them, uh, with them underwater as this, as this explosion is happening above them and the fires above. And then they would, uh, resurface with Enola swimming by herself to the delight of Helen and the insufferable Gregor and, uh, everyone else on the balloon, the guy with the beard, we don't know his name, (laughs) the told survivors. But yeah, I just thought it would be cool if she used the skill that he taught her and the two of them were actually taken beneath the water rather than bungeeing back up in a ridiculous blue screen, um, you know, poorly rendered 1995 CGI nightmare. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's not really the way that I thought Deacon would go out. But then I suppose throughout the whole film, the conflict between Deacon and the Mariner, and this is where I point towards the stage show, it's kind of tenuous and they never really share any time on screen together. They never really get a moment mm. where it's personal. I suppose the boat, but again, we've discussed how Costner, you know, it's just my boat. So you don't really get that sense She's that he's, friend, he's, out, he's, out, he's out for revenge. And that's where, yeah. in my mind, and look at us both Joss Whedon knights rewriting the script. In my mind, <laughs> if, if, they'd, if they'd met earlier, the Mariner and the Deacon, and and the chase had started earlier, and the connection between Enola and this this guy discovering his humanity through this surrogate family that he's now adopted had happened all earlier, then all the stuff at the end, I think, would would be would be better, and it would be on the atoll as well, mm. where. You know, we've got the most impressive set, uh, but we don't. And then they, they just go off to dry land. And I forgot to mention DXX, um, uh, Machina or oh, when Michael, Michael Jeter yeah. just comes floating. Oh, DXX, uh, oh, Jeter. He just, just keeps dropping him. Yeah. He actually says, uh, infernal machine. <laughs> he actually says it yeah. twice in a row. The, the, the encounter between, uh, Triple H and the Mariner is actually more face to face than, than, uh, yeah. that of the Which Deacon. Which makes sense because, you know, they, they had actually interacted. Yeah, I mean, I hoped he would have pedigreed him, but he he just yeah. shot him. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he doesn't. I mean, he doesn't even give him the sweet chair music. It's just like, why wouldn't you do that? Instead, it's, oh, my gun didn't fire, <laughs> so I'll fire. Yeah. It, it, it always <laughs> a bit late. But then when they get to 
dry land, which is what we've been looking for this entire time. Both cuts, this feels a little bit thin. Like the parents sent her down like Moses in down the Nile to be discovered. They knew they were dying. Again, I don't need to know what they were dying of, but their logic of just sending their child to sea for someone to discover seemed weird when they were on a land filled with plants and life. It just, again, it just didn't make any sense. And they really should have thought about how that would probably play. And um, and in the end, it, it just doesn't really hold up to scrutiny at all. And it doesn't really, you don't feel any emotion emotion in those sequences when they're saying about your parents. And it just feels like they just can't wait to finish the film. We've, we've not had an, enough of of Enola talking about her lack of a family. And I don't know whether we've played up the idea of her being this kind of mystery girl too much. Mm. Like it's, it's spoken about, but it's always, it's, it's the same problem they have when they first introduce her character. It's just two other characters in a, in just a straight edit. We go from uh, the Mariner selling is dirt, and then triple H is talking to that old fella. <laughs> And then that's, and that's it. That's how we understand who she is. And then we immediately meet her as, uh, again, like the next edit, she's right there. And then of course, and then she's just in the film. Um, yeah, we've not had, we've not played up enough of this kind of also, I mean, not to say that you should definitely do this, but also casting wise, like, could you have maybe cast differently to make sure that she looks so much different to, um, uh, Jean Triplehorn that, you know, Mm. that it makes it more obvious that she's caring for her. Well, I, I have big problems with the ending too, Gally, and I, I think it's uh, this whole idea that um, Enola not being the prodigious child at all and that she's actually drawing from memory and that she's drawing the, the horses and the waterfalls and things like that. If she was a baby, she wouldn't remember these these yeah. things that none, none of the, if you pick that apart and, and why, again, I agree with you, why would her parents, whether they're dying or not, send their child out onto water with a tattooed back. We had, we, I had a conversation with my girlfriend about if they tattooed a baby, like how do you tattoo a baby's back? It just it doesn't. <laughs> and, and why would you just that, that place is, that's where you should be. Don't, don't send a baby out to sea before you die of whatever you're, you're dying of. But you know, the, the arc of in all arc is kind of uh it's, it's it's not particularly well um, delivered, particularly in, mm. at, at the end. I mean, what if she was, uh, you know, and this is a trope that they have used far too much in films, but what if, you know, uh, she was, she had difficulty speaking or like, I'm thinking like the, what's the girl from uh, Logan? Mm. Yeah. You know, they have like the, the, the little kind of girl who's also a, another Wolverine. I mean, it's, it's an overused trope, but I guess tropes are overused because they work. So if she turns up with a tattoo, but also she can't communicate particularly well, which would make sense if she was brought up on, you know, dry land with only two, seemingly two people who are her parents, no other humans around. Like the fact that she's just sort of shuntering away all the time and then she's really chatty. And like, uh, that would mm. also solve the issue of her being, uh, a baby who couldn't remember what a horse looks like because mm. it might be that she floated up when she was, you know, like two years ago when she was sort of seven, eight years old. Devlin, right? I, th I think we get that anyway, because what Enola does yeah. say in the film has no relation 
no bearing to her past, really. She she says a couple mm. of things like, oh, I just draw things. Like, she, she doesn't really remember what she's drawing. She just says, these are things that I draw, and everyone interprets it's that. It's somehow in her else. consciousness. Yeah. And I, I yeah. personally, again, we're into rewriting territory, but I would have just ditched all of that pretty, prestigious stuff and front-loaded it onto our hero and be him, the reluctant hero who doesn't have his own people. Maybe the smokers killed all the mutants right at the beginning of the film, or that's how you have the connection between the Mariner and the Deacon, and there's a revenge plot going on. He comes across these, yeah, he comes across these two um, people that are maybe in, with the slavers. He rescues them. He then discovers that he does have a chance to start his own family, to, and he does belong. And then he 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 basically becomes this mythological character that saves the atoll. These people that we don't like in this film. So why do I care that they get to go to dry land? So instead, mm. you flip it where maybe they're a little oh, bit. I skeptical. like your version. Or maybe they're a little bit more skeptical because he's a mutant, and then <laughs> he saves them. And yeah. essentially. It's Star Wars. It's Luke Skywalker. I just, I just don't understand why they had to go around this, this, this weird maze of just a grinchy, grumpy arsehole who doesn't really want to connect with anyone. It also doesn't make sense at the end because if if we think about the dryland and and the the Mariner leaving and leaving that place that he's eventually discovered or helped to discover. Um, in, in order to find people that are more like him, there's not much mention of other mutants being out there. There's, there's, he no, there's not enough. He specifically says there's no one of my kind. He does, yeah. Right. So again, I'm confused between the cuts because what is he doing? Does he, are there really people out there like him? Does he really care? Does he really want to bring them to dry land? I don't think, think that fits his character at all. Yeah. Uh, he, he should just stay there with Enola and Helen and that would have been a, you know, well, he doesn't but need... it doesn't fit that Western ending with the the man with no name riding away Shane or uh, John Wayne or whoever it may be. Well, Charles Bronson in Once Upon a Time in the West. But again, with that, we have a mystery about who is this guy. We don't know anything about him. And then slowly throughout the film, we realize it's a revenge tale for him. And, and you know, Henry Fonda killed his, his brother and that's all he's out for is revenge. They should have just done something like that. It's very Mad Max, yeah. but you're already mm. you're already halfway in on ripping it off, so you may as well just go the whole hog. I just I never really it frustrated me to the point where yeah. I was like, like you said, Matt, there's a there's a really good film in there, and what what's quite sad is we'll never see a Waterworld again. I just you know made this way that looks this way. I'm, I'm slightly treading into my summary a little bit, but um, yeah, I, it frustrated me because. Mm. Missed opportunity we use quite a lot when we go back to these films, but this one really feels like a, a proper missed opportunity. Agreed. Well, I've kind of done it, but shall we, uh, shall we surmise, <laughs> shall we surmise, gentlemen? Matt, it yeah. was your choice, so, um, yeah. so why don't you, uh, why don't you start us off? What do you think, what do you think of Waterworld 25 years later? I think any film where some bloke screams, smokers dead out of the sun, maniacally, almost into the lens is cool in my book <laughs> and I admire its intentions. But like how, since 95, I've revisited Waterworld every few years with a craving for it to be better than it is, but I'm always left a little hanging in, in any cut. It's just not quite there. It, it doesn't leave me cold and I don't cringe at anything. Uh, 
but it's lacking the humanity, spirit, and uh, quotableness of something like Prince of Thieves. It's an entertaining film. The practical effects and action set pieces in particular are fantastic. Uh, Costner's practical stunt work rivals Tom Cruise all day long, and it's uh, a key factor in selling the action. Uh, if a little dull at times, you know, um, performance wise, um, again, we talked about my boat and, uh, uh, there's another one in the, uh, Ulysses cut where he says it's a good name after he's named Ulysses. Uh, again, that kind of dead delivery. Um, there's some seriously dodgy CG, uh, the monster and some of the blue screen stuff. Uh, but it's ultimately forgivable for 95. We can't blame it for that. Uh, and in terms of the flawed theatrical release, uh, aside from the odd humor and some of the sterile stunts uh, and the pacing problems, it's quite a solid action film with a lot to offer. Uh, but we said earlier, you know, why would you recommend Waterworld when Fury Road exists? Um, they're, they're both films with these practical with a capital P and that'll never happen again um, on this scale. Fury Road was um, kind of embellished with with CG and enhanced with CG. Uh, and moments like the Mariner's grappling hook rope slide may never happen again. And that's kind of sad. Um, I like the Enola-Mariner relationship. Um, and I, I do think it, it works, but only really in the extended cut, which is probably too long for anyone to digest. Costner said that he he wanted a film that swung for the fences, uh, but it just didn't quite connect. Um, and it kind of irks me that people jump on the bandwagon of it being a, a dreadful film, or even I've heard the worst film of all time, which is not true at all. It's just <laughs> hack critics and lazy news media people trying to make a quick buck. And they actually helped sabotage Waterworld in its lead up to release, which I, I'm i not cool with either. I, I think that's awful. There's a lot of really highly skilled creative people involved in this film, and I don't think it really got a fair shot. Uh, with a caveat, I would recommend watching the Ulysses cut. Uh, it's almost three hours, but you get more bang for your buck. It's It's got everything in there, and if you've got the patience and the time, you can kind of work out where that gem is lying. Uh, it, it's in there somewhere. And although there's no Reynolds cut, I think the Ulysses is the closest to um, seeing everything that we're ever going to get. So if you have the patience, I recommend checking out the Ulysses cut. Um, but yeah, g- give it a whirl or just watch Fury Road if you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is now the Fury Road review. To which it's just two thumbs up. How about you, Gali? So I must confess, I went back and forth on this one. Uh, and having watched the Ulysses cut and watched the making of documentaries on the Arrow Blu-ray, it's been tough, but I think I'm going to give Waterworld a mild not recommend. I think the craftsmanship and the artistry on display is undeniable. But that second act, forgive me for the pun, but it sinks this film... Uh, there are things to admire, especially the raid on the atoll, which I think is just incredible. But I think the characters and the story just don't quite match up to, to that ac- action sequence or indeed the climax, uh, on the Exxon Valdez. I will recommend 
watching the making of documentaries because I think the story surrounding Waterworld and the making of it is is fascinating and probably better than the film. So, uh, so yeah, I will recommend that those people that are cinephiles that are interested in how these big Hollywood blockbusters get made, uh, they go out and seek the Arrow Blu-ray uh, copy. And I think what we've also done is we've dispelled that myth that this was just some sort of huge blockbuster flop. I mean, see Tom Cruise's The Mummy or Cutthroat Island or Lone Ranger, numerous, numerous titles that don't get the same amount of hate and vitriol as uh, as Waterworld. So, yeah, that's where I lie, unfortunately, Matt. But I've got to say, I really did enjoy discussing it. And it did it did switch on the old writer's brain. So you never know. The next gig might be on uh, on trying to solve the, the Doctor Doolittle film. <laughs> <laughs> kind of shocked that anyone considered it to be, you know, one of the worst films ever made. This is, like you say, this is patent nonsense. It is a... Uh... A perfectly serviceable '90s action film, um, and like a, I don't know, like Fortress. I'd give it about the same level of quality as. Fortress. Oh, I'm not sure about that, Devlin. Oh, come on. <laughs> okay, okay, it's slightly better than Fortress. Um, but um, okay, it's it, it probably would have been it would have been better off if it had kept some of that sort of energy, though, or maybe something like No Escape. Yes, No Escape, more like yes. You know, if if you if it falls between a lot of stools, it's uh it's it's not really as much fun as it thinks it is. It's not as serious as it thinks it is. It's it's um. But having said all that, it is still a, a big old, well-mounted '90s blockbuster, and these things are always watchable if they're made, you know, well enough. Um, it's, it's interesting. It was interesting hearing about all the stuff that went on behind the scenes and how much material was cut and, and what kind of film it could have been. Uh, it's frustrating that it could have been something a lot better, but, um, much like the, the kind of controversy that comes with, you know, people saying that something like Suicide Squad was taken away from David Ayer and recut and a compromised vision was put out into the world. Um, I don't think there was a good film anywhere in the footage for Suicide Squad. Um, this one, I lean more towards the idea that there there probably is, but I still don't think they shot it. I think there was the potential, but I think even with the material they have to hand, I still think you're going to end up with a film which is, which is very flawed, albeit one that makes more sense and maybe is a little bit more um, palatable. Uh, but just the Unfortunately, it just comes down to like the long and short of it was I was quite looking forward to revisiting this film and I genuinely struggled to get through the running time just of the theatrical cut. Whether it was that maybe I wasn't quite in the mood for it or or, or what, I'm not sure. But I think, um, you know, uh, a genuinely interesting and good film will, will catch your attention no matter what. Uh, so for me, uh, interesting to watch it again more interesting to talk about uh but i probably wouldn't recommend jumping back into it as i say unless you want to kind of like galley says unless you want to sort of dissect it as an opportunity to to kind of fanfic it and come up with something a little bit more coherent are you saying that uh release the reynolds cut hashtag is not going to take off 
Um, yeah, unfortunately, I'm I'm not sure that the hashtag Reynolds cut is is gonna greatly improve the experience. It'll just make it longer. For those people that are looking to find Waterworld, um, Dryland is just that way. No, only kidding. Uh, so you can get the Arrow Blu-ray at all your major retailers. Uh, I think you can purchase it on Amazon Prime, but it's currently not streaming on any of the streaming sites. Is that right, Devlin? I, I did my. Uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a rental. It'll cost you. 250 or 350 and uh and what we would would ask is if you enjoyed the show um you know please like share subscribe all that good stuff you can find us on twitter uh we've also got a new facebook page so come along say hello all of this is on the show notes for this episode so uh yeah uh, guys i've got to say i feel like inspired to uh, make a change so i'm gonna try and be a little bit more environmentally savvy because i don't want the polarized caps to melt uh, so I'm off now Very to good. create. Mm. I'm going to grow some gills. Yeah, oh, you're going to grow some gills. Okay, <laughs> I'm uh, I'm going to go one step behind that <laughs> evolution. I'm building myself a little filtration device uh, so I can be a little bit more cleaner as I live. So yeah, excuse me while I build my piss. Machine. Oh well, I'm I'm going to go the other way. Oh yeah, you a I'm smoker? Smoke some fags, <laughs> eat some smeat. <laughs> And I've got 120 keys of assorted edibles here. So adios, cousins. Oh dear. Right. Well, uh, <laughs> thank you very much, Matt. And, uh, thank you very much. It's Galley signing out on, uh, thank you for listening. And it's Devlin in London. Thank you very much. Nice to talk to you guys. See you again later. It's Matt in South Korea. Bye bye. I'm not your boy, toy.